Let's see if this is okay with you. My name is Vida Sister Prince. Today is March 2nd, 1992, and I'm interviewing Mr. Marvin Teeter about the activities of the Red Cross during World War II on the home front in St. Louis and in Europe and the South Pacific. This oral history is being conducted for the Missouri Historical Society, and Mr. Teeter was the CEO of the Red Cross from 1964 to 1982 in St. Louis. Peter, uh, where were you in 1941? Well, I, I joined, I went on the staff of the uh, American National Red Cross right after Pearl Harbor. And I was at the national headquarters of the Red Cross, which was in Washington. And then I, I traveled extensively in connection with my career, and my travels at that time brought me to St. Louis along with other places. So I was able to observe long before I'd ever dreamed, I'd ever dreamed of becoming a staff member of the St. Louis chapter. Uh, I was able to observe what, yeah, you want to close that? Yeah, that, that's, much, that's much better to cut off some of that extra noise. I was, I was able to observe the work of, of the National Red Cross because there was a headquarters of the National Red Cross in St. Louis. The organization, I won't bore you with a long recital of structure, but, but the, the National Red Cross had three administrative centers. One of them was in St. Louis. And my work with the national organization brought me out here. And in that connection, I was out of Jefferson Barracks for a while. I, I worked with the chapter in terms of their vast, the vast expansion of Red Cross activities as a result of World War II, caused by World War II. Uh, at, at the time, and, and just to go back very briefly, I think it ought to be pointed out for purposes of history the Red Cross is a single organization. It's a single entity. It's a single corporation. It charters chapters to, to extend the work of the Red Cross into communities, and that's what was happening. That's what happens here now, for that matter. That's what happened in World War II with the emphasis mainly on services to the armed forces. That's what it was all about. In 1917, the St. Louis chapter was chartered by the National Red Cross, as was a chapter in the county known as the Webster Groves chapter, which was the oldest chapter, one of the oldest chapters west of the Mississippi. That was chartered? In early, even earlier than the St. Louis chapter in 1917. With a jurisdiction, always the charters prescribe a jurisdiction for a... So Webster was 1917? Yes, and, and, okay, and, and St. Louis was... Well, Webster was... No, Webster was 19, I think Webster was 1915. 1915. 1915. St. Louis was 1917. St. Louis will soon celebrate its 75th anniversary. But the, I think the thing that, since your emphasis is, is on, on the Red Cross and its work specifically in this area in World War II, that's what I would maybe, and I want you to, I want you to guide me. I want well, you I want it in this area specifically, and then I want to interview people who uh, worked here in, this in, the Saint, in the St. Louis area, and then also that went abroad. Uh, yeah, but yeah. you and I will concentrate on, on whatever you know about what happened here. Right. Um, 
I do have one question. You say that uh, the Red Cross chapters all over the country are singly run, but but do they follow a yes. uh, um, the same rules and regulations and guidelines? Yes, are you doing this in one city? Are you doing well? This there, there there's a lot of local. Uh, there's a good deal, of, a considerable amount of local autonomy mm -hmm. that the organization allows or permits. In other words, if a chapter, chapter can finance a program that has more meaning locally, that not, doesn't necessarily have to be a national program. Mm -hmm. But there are two things, <clears throat> there are two fundamentals involved in the chartering of a chapter. The chapter has to do two things, because the Red Cross, National Red Cross, operates under a congressional charter granted in 1905 which named the Red Cross, number one, as the official disaster relief organization for the United States, number two, as the official medium of communication between the people of the United States and it says there, and its army and navy, or it means mm -hmm. its armed forces. Those are two things they had to do in World War II, had to do before World War II, they've had to do after World War II. Those are things they have to do if they don't do anything else. Disaster and services to the armed forces. Well, my work, when I came out here, along with many other places, as, a, as, as a, on the staff of the, of the Red Cross, the National Red Cross, and I came out in St. Louis, because there was this, what they call the Midwestern Area Headquarters, I worked... Now, you're speaking of World War II time. World War II. Now, what date? What year? Well... You came on in 41, you said? I, no, I came on in, I came on in March of... of 1942. 42. Okay. So that puts you here in, in 42 uh, and 43. And I, I think I believe I came out here first. Well, I I came out here working on some flood down on the Mississippi River. I think in 42. But I guess my first official assignment at the Midwestern Area Headquarters would have been in early 1943. Okay. And actually, what what I was doing for a, a good part of that time. I was in charge of, of procurement or recruitment for staff. Uh, you mentioned Jane Smith Shapley. I had a, I had a recruitment team, or they called it employment service, and we were busily engaged in interviewing field directors, mostly men, to go with the troops, recreation workers like, like Mrs. Shapley was or whatever she did. I think she, was a, I think she worked in the hospitals. I don't really remember. But these were all paid staff. And we, we recruited, we, my office was recruiting paid staff. We advertised, in all, and at that time there were three metropolitan daily newspapers. And we advertised in, in, in newspapers, and we'd say to people, if you, if you want to do something in the war effort, we got many, many men who, who were rejected. I was rejected by the Marine Corps. That's why I went to work for the Red Cross. I was in the Marine Corps Reserve, and, and my eyes were not quite as good well, they didn't meet the specifications for the Marine Corps, so I, I knew I wouldn't go to sit around and do nothing, so I went to work for the Red Cross, and that's the way it all started. So we, ha we had, um, we recruited and assigned men and women all over the world out of this office here in St. Louis. They'd have, after, we, after we signed them up, then they'd go to, Nashville, to, to Washington for training, and then they'd be assigned wherever, if they, some of them, Domestic, some of them, many of them, most of them went overseas from one place or another. Um, it's a roundabout way of getting at it, but but when 
When I think of what the Red Cross was doing in St. Louis in World War II, it was probably an accident that I came out here. If it had been Kansas City, then they'd have But they didn't. The National Red Cross had this center called the Midwest. It was, it was not a chapter. It was, a, it was <coughs> an extension of the national organization into <coughs> through these administrative centers. And, and they provided service to chapters out, out of it. Well, although, although I worked there, I was, because of a rather peculiar assignment, I, I was out here at Jefferson Barracks, and that's when I got acquainted with what this chapter was doing. This chapter had gone, <coughs> excuse me, from a from World War One to World War Two. The Red Cross continued a lot of activity, a lot of community activity. Did a lot of disaster work. Did a lot of work with services to the armed forces. They did some nutrition work. They nutrition work, <coughs> just do uh, people whole, who yeah, no. teaching people basic, basic skills of nutrition. Did a lot of nursing services, lots of home nursing, mm -hmm. lots of first aid, and lots of life saving. In between the wars. In between the wars. But it was still relatively small. Mm -hmm. In fact, very small staff. Whack when, after Pearl Harbor, before, <coughs> in fact, <coughs> I, I didn't even live Would in you like? But it was. Did you have to Jefferson Barracks? What, what was going Well, when, when I, I was at Jefferson Barracks, and I remember the first visit I made to the St. Louis chapter because the, all of a sudden this chapter was asked to, it had to expand its staff because the, the chapter was the link the serviceman had with, well, I'm, I'm bumbling around here a little. Well, let, let me ask you specifics. Okay. They, I mean, I had some notes here that were only the thing, you know, things that I would only know about. Yeah. I mean, that's all I would know about. They, they, what they, they taught first aid. Taught first aid. Uh, tell me about that. Who did they teach it to? Anyone. As, as a matter of and fact. My mother taught a class. Oh yeah. As a matter of fact, soon, very soon, within within three to four weeks after Pearl Harbor. The National Red Cross launched a nationwide campaign that stated, we intend to train at least one member of every American family in first aid preparedness. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know that they achieved that goal, but millions and millions of people soon after Pearl Harbor were, had taken or were taking or had taken first aid, American Red Cross first aid classes. How, how, did, they, how did they set it up? Did they? Uh, have classes that people come to them and they go to churches and schools? Churches, schools, sometimes in homes. Mm -hmm. It first started, in fact, first, the first first aid class I ever took was taught by a physician down here at Joplin. That's where I lived at that time. Mm -hmm. they, they got physicians first because they were already trained or they thought they were trained in, in, um, in at least basic skills in first aid. They were authorized after taking a, a test to see whether they were qualified to teach first aid. And then, then the local Red Cross chapters would, would put the word out, and you mentioned it. They'd have, they'd have first aid classes in schools, in churches, in community buildings, any place they could get some chairs and some tables, and they started teaching them first aid. Mm -hmm. And they the taught volunteers. Was, yeah, vol then, then as all this was going on, they were training volunteers and they expanded the teaching all volunteers mm -hmm. done with some staff. Okay, so they did that. Then they um, 
What would what would you say the most important thing they did was during the war here? Well, I I think that um, the most important thing, at least in my judgment, judgment was this uh, link with the families, what we call services to the armed forces. In other words, we had these people that I mentioned earlier that we were recruiting to become field directors would accompany American troops abroad. And if something happened in a family of a just 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 isolated to St. Louis, a death in the family, an emergency in the family, it was family service to military families is what it amounted to. So if if, if just because a guy happened to be fighting in Germany or in the South Pacific did not mean that things could not happen to his family. Mm-hmm. If he got word, or if a chapter got word that a parent had died, or was critically ill, or whatever happens to people, then the chapter was the link at home that would establish that there is a there is an emergency. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't easy for a man to get loose, come halfway around the world without without verification. So if 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 his let's let's. So they would do all that. They they would do. That's what the chapter staff would do. If if a call came Red in. Tape. Yes, if a call if a call came in, and 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 sometimes it would it would originate with the man himself. The family would get in touch with him and say, "Dad is seriously ill." The chapter here in St. Louis would contact, the, or the family frequently would usually would contact the chapter first, and the chapter would verify it through the physician or the hospital or whatever. And they would and always the military required a a diagnosis if it was an illness and a prognosis. And if it was serious and it was a close relationship, with certainly a father, parent, or a child, or whatever, then the man could apply for emergency leave and could come home. That was the best, the best description I can give is that, you, that the Red Cross on a nationwide and international basis provided uh, uh, casework services to, to, to American service. And so that would be a field director that would do that? And the field director would, would, would be, I was a field director at one time, for example. You went overseas? No, I didn't go overseas. Oh, Not here. in this connection, no. Mm-hmm. Um, but a man would, would come in to my office. I was field director at Fort Leonard Wood for a little while. Mm-hmm. They had 40, we had, had 50,000 troops down there, engineer replacement training center and the big infantry division over on the west side of that post getting ready to go out to overseas. A man would come in and say, I just heard from my family. My mother is sick. We'd take the information and send it to the chapter. If it was a St. Louis chapter, a big chapter, we knew we'd get a reply pretty soon because they had the staff. If it was a country chapter, sometimes it wouldn't come through quite as fast. But it was the link that that man had because he couldn't just walk off and say, mm-hmm. hey, i got to go home. My mother's sick. Okay. Not, not during the war. All right. That, I think, was the most important. All right. And... Uh Somebody was always knitting something. Oh yeah, knitting uh, sweaters and and uh, sometimes yeah that was not that was not as made th- th- a lot of those things went to hospitals. I, before I forget it, I want and I mentioned it on the phone yesterday. This community housed a very unique service activity, and that was the prisoner of war packaging center. Mm-hmm. 
I can't. I couldn't find it. I was looking at these books. I thought the address might have been in here, but it's some some place down here around the brewery, someplace. Well, you've you've gotten together some scrapbooks. I well, those are that that. But is that on the history of? Uh, well, that's the Webster Groves chapter. Oh. They, they is there out. anything that you have that would? You know, they said that there were some minutes of meetings during the war. Well, and here's the annual report, 43. That's the whole 44. corporation. Oh, but that's not that's not. Um, all right, well, let's just continue talking like we are. Um, uh, all right, tell me about the prisoner. Well, the, by authority of the, of the National Red Cross, there were several places in the United States, communities, where they had prisoner of war packaging. They packaged these, these items that would go to, to American prisoners, and all that had to be channeled through the international activities of the Red Cross. It was it was a, a an assembly line process. I still remember it was unbelievable. Volunteers, mostly volunteers, that did that. They worked. They had certain comfort item, items that went in there, certain food items that were that were not perishable that would that would go into these packages. Then they would be shipped to warehouse warehouses and sent then over overseas to to. There are many many men. You, you know, there've been there large criticisms of organizations like this. I have yet to find former prisoner of war who had anything bad to say about the Red Cross, because many of them say, well, it wouldn't be around if those packages hadn't come through. Uh, were you able to be assured during the war, um, or was the Red Cross, not to personally, that, that these were actually reaching people? Well, that's a real good question, it, and it's not easy to answer because the, the the prisoner of war packages that went to the Pacific, some of them never got there. But strangely enough, with all the evils of the Nazi Empire, the, the Germans were were better. It didn't. They didn't just go over just like you know United Parcel Service. They had to go through various warehouses. They had to be screened. But mainly the Germans. Were, were better than, than well, certainly much better than, right. than the Japanese. Um, was there there were no food items in there? No, no. There were there were th yes there oh yes there were there yes were yes yes. I can't remember what in the world. Well, I know. But where where was the plant here in Canada? In South St. Louis, and I swear I don't know where. Maybe you could. Maybe you could find that out. I'll try to find out. I'll, and I'll maybe we could try and find somebody who worked there. Well, I know one lady, and I'm going to call her. Um, I think she was around here. What is her name? Uh, she was on the staff. Her name's Helen Hawkins, and I know Helen real well, and I'll call her. Okay. And I'll ask her if she can, if she can remember where that was. Well, maybe she'd like to talk a little bit. Yeah, I'll tell even her. if it's I'll, I'll ten minutes. You know. Yeah, I'll give her. I'll give her your your phone number. She can give you a call. Um, well, I, I would appreciate, Mr. Teeter, if if she says that she will talk to me. Why don't if you would give me a call? Oh, well, and then we'll do it that way, and then you can call her. The responsibility yeah, okay, on me that. and not her. Okay, um, sure will. Uh, I would really appreciate that. All right. So um, that now. We've got a cost. Oh, well, blood, obviously. Tell me about that. Yeah, early, 
early in the war, I'd say by late 42, the Red Cross was was selected to to collect blood, whole blood, not nothing like this sophisticated thing they run here, no, nothing at all, but collect whole blood strictly for the use of the armed forces. The Red Cross didn't didn't give the blood to anybody. They collected it, turned it over to the armed forces, and it was shipped out. Well, it was shipped out as plasma and as whole blood, uh, and and that was done in St. Louis. The extent of which I don't know, and I knew I anticipated your question. I can't find anything on it. I really can't. I can find in here where it was approved to do it, along mm -hmm. along as that, because things were happening so fast. I mean, the the Red Cross prior to World War II, the cha this chapter, for example, was was a member of what they call United Charities, which is a predecessor to the United Way and so on. Immediately upon the outbreak of the war, President Roosevelt, with the designation of the Red Cross as the official organization to handle services to the armed forces, said to chapters, you're going to have to raise a lot of money, and the chapter voted to, to get out of the United Charities and started on its own to, to raise money because of their, well, they, their, their staff went up probably 100 mm percent. -hmm. I don't know how much, but they had to have trained people to handle these things. Because you, you get into, when you're dealing with families, you get into all kinds of, of um, complex situations. It's not just a matter of sending a wire and getting a wire back. Not always, sometimes it is. But but the. Um, well, what is it? Go into a little bit more. Hmm? What kind of complex? What do you think? Well, whatever can happen to a family, it can happen to a serviceman's family. If he's gone, it only it only augments the problem because he is gone. If he's home, he'd probably take care of it himself. If if, he, if his wife has a baby and he's home, he goes to the hospital with her. If he was in in France, it's a little tough. If, if if his mother got sick and he's here at home, he'd, they'd call him on the telephone and he'd go over to see his mother if he was in France or Southwest Pacific. And you he, still had, he still had the problem, and the Red Cross was there to help him work through it, whatever it took. And, the, and, so, and they helped here, and they helped yes. him. So sometimes it took financial resources. Constant coordination? Yeah. So, yeah. so sometimes, sometimes it took, um, we'd have to advance money. How did people know that that they could get that kind of help well, from they the Red were, Cross, what, the people in St. Louis, maybe in the armed forces that they were told, and, but how would an average, well, I don't know less that than average? The, they did, and, and the servicemen, the servicemen were instructed when they went, when, when they were, when they first went into service, they were instructed that if certain things happen, you go to the Red Cross field director's office, and here's where it's located. If you need help, you go see the Red Cross. So sometimes the idea that they could get help in St. Louis came from him. Yes, or yeah, 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 yeah. Or he might get a letter that concerned him. Many times guys would come in and, and, and they'd, they'd, uh, they'd say, look, look, I just got a letter from my family, and this is what's going on. i got to do something about this. I can't, I've got to, I've got to get home or I've, or I've got somebody's got to look after my family my wife has been evicted or my wife's going to have a baby and we don't have enough money back there. What am I going to do? Where were the offices in, in, during the war? Well, the Red Cross, since it was the only official organization permitted to work on these military bases, the Red Cross on major bases built buildings. They had buildings. 
Jefferson Barracks, that building's still down there on the west end of that parade ground. So you had one, but, but that was we had, one. We'd, had have a, we'd have a headquarters. A headquarters there. Yeah. And then you had one in the city? Well, we'd have the chapter was a headquarters. And the family could go to the chapter. Right, but I mean, where, where was it physically located in the city? It was, it was located, let's see, it was on, this chapter was located, first time I ever visited it was at, uh, 3414 Lindell. And then it moved to 4901 Washington. This was long after the war. Moved to 4901 Washington and then moved over here in 19, to this building in 1974. Mm -hmm. This address is? 4050. 4050, okay, Lindell. But besides Jefferson Barracks and 3414 Lindell during the war, was there another office in the city? Either? No. Um, well, there was the Webster Gross chapter. At, uh, Webster. On, yeah, it was okay. on West Lock, on uh, East Lockwood, 212 East Lockwood. Okay. Webster chapter no longer exists because they merged them all together here mm -hmm. many years later. <clears throat> but, see, it wasn't necessary to have so many, even the big major military installations like Fort Leonard Wood and Jer Jefferson Barracks was an induction reception center. They had 40,000 men going in and out there all the time. Mm -hmm. but, they, but, but the Red Cross only had one building, and that was right up on Post Headquarters. Mm -hmm. Easy to find, easily identified, and, and they would, when, when the men went through their, in fact, it's in the Army regulations, the Red Cross uh, Army regulations. Uh, I was just trying to say, how does it say it? Well, anyway, it's, it's pointed out, to, it was pointed out to servicemen that if they needed help with family problems, to go see the Red Cross, and the Red Cross was located at a certain place. Okay, and so that's that's what they did at Jefferson Barracks. Was there did that did troops give blood? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. So they, they could do that, and and they probably had coffee and donuts, and they were the link. We've ascertained that, and um, and I don't mean to say is that it, but yeah, <laughs> was well, there anything else that? Well, they, uh, yeah, they, 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 I realize, Mr. Teeter, that I'm asking you for something that you, been a long time. not only has it been a long time, but you're doing your best to help me with something where you were here, in and out, in and out, and that's you, right. this was not but your the, job, I, so I really appreciate but the, but the interesting thing your I, brain. Well, that's <laughs> all right. The interesting thing is, and I think this is not only interesting, but very important, the fact of the matter is that wherever there were American troops, there was some representation of the Red Cross there. It could be, there, there were, and I was just thinking as you asked that question, there were many smaller military units around St. Louis, much smaller than Jefferson Barracks. There was a Marine Corps detachment out here at the airport. There was a Coast Guard detachment down at the foot of Ferry Street on the Mississippi River. But they were all tied in if, if something happened to a Coast Guardsman, then, then, then he, and he'd go in and see his commanding officer. Commanding officer would call the field director out of Jefferson Barracks and they'd send somebody to see him or send the guy over there or whatever. So it was a link, actually. Yeah. Or, or if he wanted to come to the chapter. But the chapter primary, whether it was Salt Lake City or New York City or St. Louis or Springfield, Missouri or whatever, 
the system was really there, this, this, this link of communication. I hesitate to ask you this question, and um, we don't have to discuss it if you don't want to, but if this was, this is, I mean, I can tell by listening to you how deeply you feel about this particular one thing that, that you're talking about. How, how did the difficulty start with the American Red Cross getting a well, bad... The, the difficulty came Rap. primarily yeah. from overseas, and it was—it's a real strange kind of subjective thing. Actually, in 1942, the the Red Cross. Now I'm, I'm moving away from St. Louis and going to this vast thing that we did overseas. But we'll come back. Yeah, <laughs> to the club the club program that, that the Red Cross ran in, in in all every place where there were American troops. Southwest Pacific. Did you know Mel Newmark? He just died here about. Yeah, well, I, I know yeah. his son. Well, I hired Mel Newmark, and he went over to the South, Southwest Pacific, did a fantastic job, and ran a club over there. Mm -hmm. I tried to get Mel to stay with the Red Cross after the war, but he's going to practice law. But when you say a club, what does that mean? That meant that, that servicemen and women could come in and. Um, Get out, get out when they were on leave or when they were off duty. They could come in, like in the Rainbow Club in London, for example. You come into the Rainbow Club, and for about the equivalent of 50 cents American, you could eat, you could stay there for a day or two, night or two, you could play pool, you could sit around and visit, you could read, you could do. It was a club. Okay. Like it was. It was a, like a USO club, except the USO did not operate clubs overseas. The Red Cross operated them overseas. USO did it lo on, on a domestic basis. Yes. You asked a question yesterday yes. about the USO. Right. But one, one answer, I think probably the best answer to your question, came as a result of, in 1942, the Allied, when the war started, and all the, a lot of stuff started in Europe, the Allied Forces Command had decreed that they, like a, a British and French and all the rest of the Allied, they, they, they decided that they were going to charge their servicemen for support, uh, uh, even small, that they were going to charge their servicemen for services in these clubs. The American Red Cross, there's a great exchange of correspondence between the, war, the Secretary of the War and the head, Norman Davis, who was head of the Red Cross. Davis said, no, we're not going to charge American servicemen anything. And it became a matter of concern to the Allied command because there was a lot of jealousy. They, 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 the, a lot of the servicemen, particularly enlisted personnel, in the other Allied forces, other components, like the British and the French, thought the Americans were spoiled anyway. The Yanks were getting everything. The Yanks, they get paid better, they get fed better, and so on. So, so it was a token kind of thing. But I, for example, my brother-in-law, who who's now dead, but he was a reporter with the Yank that, 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 yeah, in Europe. And he was a great supporter of the Red Cross because he said he would be so tired and he'd go into what they call the Rainbow Club in London. So what the hell are these guys fussing about? said, for 50 cents, I could go in and take a shower, I could get something to eat, I could visit with people, I could play cards, I could play pool. 50 cents. So the Red Cross made a token charge, but American servicemen, many of them resented even the token charge. Today, right.
Okay. Then, then they, then, then it got itself augmented. Then, then it would, they, guys would come back, and, and no one has ever been able to explain adequately, not to me anyway, why sometimes people like to, like to take a cut at, at something that's good. Now that's a kind of a, a roundabout way of trying to say something, but there, there were, there were outright falsehoods told there were mistakes made. I, I picked up, I was at a military base one day. In this country? Yeah, in this country. And I picked up two hitchhikers, two guys going back to the base. And two enlisted men, they made, they said, um, one of them took out a package of cigarettes and said, here, you want a cigarette? And I said, no, I got some. He said, well, I just bought these over at the PX. And I said, let me look at that package of cigarettes. There it was on that the cigarettes were donated to the Red Cross, not to be sold. But this, these cigarettes got in the PX. We don't know how they got in the PX. They got in the warehouse, and the, and the tax exemptor, the free cigarettes, were, got over to the PX, and the guy was selling them. These happened to be lucky strikes. He was selling them at the market price. So, so a guy comes out of that, he, uh, servicemen, many of them, yeah. honestly, they didn't know anything about all that stuff. Don't tell me I didn't buy Red Cross cigarettes. Yeah. So, so it was, I guess, to over, maybe to oversimplify it, if it can be done. It was wartime. There were lots of mistakes made. But the Red Cross did not really officially ever charge anybody for anything, except in those clubs which were behind the lines. Up close to the lines, they didn't charge for anything. The, I think Mrs. Shapley was, was, could tell you more about mm -hmm. this. They, they would, um, I'll tell you another lady you might talk with. Yes, I know a lady I want, I want you to talk with. Mm -hmm. um, she wrote a book, and I have her book, and when I get home, I'll dig it out. She still lives out here. Oh, what is her? Well, look, I'll call you for Do you know Virginia Deutsch? She went overseas too. You want to talk with this lady? Okay. Uh, she's uh, she was married. She still is married, as far as I know, to the man who was head of uh, AAA for, for Blue Cross. Oh, 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 so silly. No, that's all right. She's well, but home. She, it's not and, and her book, her book, she's a St. Louisan. And I think her book is fascinating because it tells about the time that she was recruited. She's working down here at what that old store, Scruggs, Vanderbilt, mm -hmm. Barney, remember that? Or Sticks or one of them. She was recruited and went overseas, was over in Europe as a clubmobile girl. And I just thought that, that, in fact, I think I think the book ought to be at the Historical Society. Good. It, may, it might be, but, maybe she, but I have the book. Well, is it St. Louis at War? Is that it? There yeah. is a... Woman that wrote a book. Yeah, no, this isn't. No, I know the book you're talking mm -hmm. about. No, this this was a, this lady's experiences as a as a Red Cross mm -hmm. clubmobile girl in Europe. Okay, um, I think no, that sounds a little familiar. All right, um, I have some questions more on the blood drive. Uh, 
where where did they um, was there major centers uh, I really don't know I don't know where they collected that blood I all right well we won't dwell on it we'll just have to find somebody that knows that maybe work there and maybe I can through some uh, other link uh, Coffee and Donuts is the station I can call. Um, well, this lady, I'm going to give you her name. I'll, will you be home tonight? Yes. I'll call you tonight because I, I know, I think I'm, I've been moving my books around, but I think I can find it. Well, really helpful. I have, I have a question um, about blacks, Negroes, in those days. Um, were they ever hired, and the reason I'm asking is because uh, I came across a woman that I interviewed for another project, just in black history, and her name was Marie Williams, and she worked for the um, Urban League at that time, and Marie Williams uh, went overseas. Uh, with the Red Cross? With the Red Cross. I've uh, you know, I think I her. know her. Yes, I think someone down here I, that I spoke to, maybe it was Laurie Winter, um, said she knew Marie Williams. I know Marie very, Williams. Very light. Yeah, and, I know her. Uh, I think I heard she, she, She's deceased now. She yeah, passed away. Yeah. But, Worked at uh, the Urban League, yeah. And, and came back and went back to the Urban League. And yeah. was there 50 years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, dynamite little person she was and her did did she did Marie see some prejudice I'm sure she did um well uh, some but well, I it were, wasn't the I interviewed her for something else that wasn't the, yeah. she brought actually she the gist of it was that she brought out her pictures and there she was in the Red Cross and yeah. and um no, and there were a couple of other um, people. I it, it, that that is not what's coming to mind. What's coming to my mind, and the questions are: Were there any working in St. Louis for you at that time? Um, there were there were some some top. There were men most mostly men whose names I could they, they but they weren't St. Louis they were national Red Cross mm -hmm. figures but you the reason I'm asking is that uh, look, I, if there were any people I would like to know who they were if what was the reasoning for hiring recruiting somebody to go overseas but not particularly recruiting people for St. Louis I don't know there, there, well, there was at that time. There was still racism was fully acknowledged as a part of American fabric. The reality of that subject is that yes, the Red Cross, the American Red Cross, had some black professional workers in its hospital program, and that's what Marie Williams did, I think. And it had some black field directors, but they always worked with black servicemen. That was a part of the fabric, and it was it was acceptable. It, it was it was horrible, and it's I, I think it's probably the worst thing that's happened to our society. I have a lot of strong feeling about racism, 
but it was it was a reality and there and jumping around here but going back to the blood program the, the black people in this country black Americans were very very critical of the Red Cross at one point in time in connection with its blood program even after the war when it started then the Red Cross then went into civilian blood program yeah, can we can we make this a sort of a St. Louis? It would this would apply to St. Louis as well as oh, yeah. well, anybody else? Well, I I don't know I don't know that there was ever an issue in St. Louis. It was an issue with black people all over the country because but they wouldn't take blood. Well, no, they'd take it, but they segregated it. Okay. And and it was. It, well, it might be interesting to see if that happened here. I don't think it did. Uh, I, 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 it may it may have come up, but it was, and I can because I came back after a while after the war. I left the Red Cross, and then came back here, and and we, once in a while, you would hear criticism from black people who just very quietly wouldn't give blood. Mm -hmm. uh, but but it never became in this community. It never did become a, a major issue with 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 the black population, uh, because the Red Cross stopped the practice. At one stop here or nationally? Nationally, it was oh, a national okay. program, and they, for a while, because of pressure, particularly from the South, they they would they would isolate blood. If they took blood from a black person, then it was labeled. They 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 made them stop it. Mm -hmm. So so uh, blood has not been labeled by color for I don't know for 40 years, I guess. So, but it, but it was not. It was never it was never a heated up issue in St. Louis, and I know because I've been I've been around here most of the past 35 years because I managed I managed the Webster Gross chapter before I came in here and managed this one, and uh, so I don't think that was an issue. But we we did not have although during World War II we had some black as I said black professional field directors and recreation workers. Who, who accompanied troops, and some of them were on domestic assignments, but they worked with black, with black uh, service personnel. So, if a, if a person, a, a person at Jefferson Barracks, a black person or Negro, wanted something with his family, he didn't speak to the white. No, he no, he did. He did. He did. Sure. We we they come in they come into the office out there. It didn't make a difference what color they were. If the guy if he was in service and he had a problem, we'd work with him. Uh, but but it was it had to do with with the assignment of. It, it it didn't have to do with how he was received. If he came in for service from the Red Cross, it was the fact that that he would be served by a white field director because we didn't have very many black ones. Mm -hmm. We had some. We we had in fact I worked with two or three great guys. They've got their pictures out here at this office, Red Cross office out on Lindbergh. Think they still be alive? No, no, they're all dead. You've got to find me some lot. No, you're they're all, they're all dead. What's the date of your birth? My birth? Mm -hmm. June the twenty second, nineteen thirteen. Nineteen thirteen. Okay. Um. Okay. So what 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 are we missing on St. Louis? Oh, what, or, or that you can think of in another city that went on here too. Now you're talking about World War II, not mm -hmm. specifically. Mm -hmm. um, How about 
the job that the men held? Were there many that women filled then? What did we learn? The jobs in your organization where men went off to war and the women filled them. Were there more women? Um, uh, oh, I don't know. The, the most, the, what the title for the, the, the job for um, the men was field director. They, those were the men. That, the, those were men. Those were men, mostly. Okay. Now, there, well, there were also female field directors, but mainly the female field directors were worked in hospitals. And the men were in offices. Yeah, they, they were. They were assigned to go. They accompanied troops. How far did they accompany troops? Where we went. If if, if they they might we might send we might hire a guy in St. Louis, for example. Well, this is what we did. Well, we hired Mel Newmark, and he went. I hired him over at Seventeenth in Washington, because the Red Cross had a building over there then. Mel's just one of several. I remember him particularly because after the war we'd see each other once in a while. And then, and Mel wanted to work with the, in the club work. He wanted, to, he, he liked that better than being out with the troops, specifically with a unit. So he went over there. But many people, uh, Catcher, who's a very prominent attorney here, he was, he was with the Red Cross. Oh, there's so many of them. Um, they would. Well, let me give you an example. I hired a guy here in St. Louis. And he joined the 6th Infantry Division before it went overseas. Mm -hmm. He joined them down in the desert. They were in their final phase of training down in the, the southwest, mm -hmm. Arizona or someplace. When that unit moved out, he moved out as the Red Cross man. He was identified as the Red Cross man. He was the Red Cross field director with the 6th Infantry Division. And he went on maneuvers or, or, and wherever they went up to the yes, front with him? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And, if, if, and he sometimes would, he, didn't he'd have it. If he had two or three men on his staff, they'd be called assistant field directors. They'd all go with the unit. I was, That's I, very dangerous. Sometimes. Well, we had, we, had some, we had some people lost their lives in World War II. Yeah. We've had... Um, I, I was just trying to think of another more specific example. And uh, in 1942, Dr. Gordon Beter was the captain chairman in St. Louis. Yeah, and he was, Dr. Beter, I, I met him. He was chairman here for a long time. And he was succeeded in the late 40s by Kim Bidding Sr. Um, well, I really I don't know whether this has been any help. Oh, it's such sure. a ramble. Well, but it, that's okay because, uh, you know, if you had been here, you would have more specific things, I'm sure, yeah. wherever you were, if somebody was in here. But, but I feel very fortunate to have you at all, and uh, um, maybe we'll see if we can't track down those minutes. And what you've given me is a little understanding of just the Red Cross itself, which is extremely helpful to me. And I make you know, after talking to some of the names that I have and some that you're going to give me, um, uh, then you know maybe we'll we'll talk again. Well, don't don't hesitate to call me. You have my number, and I'll give you the name. I I don't know why in the world I didn't call oh, them. Oh, okay. Now, now, because we're gonna now we're gonna go out a little bit from the Red Cross. You, I had told you about uh, interviewing a gentleman from McDonald Aircraft, and you start talking about. Mr. Mack. Yeah. 
Okay, and and what what he did as far as speaking to so just ramble on about Mr. Mack. Well, uh, Mr. Mack, you know? I don't I don't think Mr. Mack had much to do with the Red Cross, although no, everybody. No, no, had we're talking about uh, what he did. We're outside of the Red Cross okay. now. We're we're talking about what what the story when I told you that the, the man I interviewed said that uh, Mr. Mack got on the uh, loudspeaker. Uh, and we're talking about morale at McDonnell Aircraft, and you picked up on that, and you really well. I was to told that uh, Mr. Mack apparently got on that tube every day, mm-hmm. up to the time that he was active. Up to the, and he, he, some of the stuff that's happened at McDonnell Douglas didn't happen when he was out there. Yeah, no, that's, no. that's what the wife of this man I interviewed yeah. said. She wished he was still there. Oh then. boy, he mentioned. Well, what, was he, what, was he, what are you referring well, to? Well, Mr. Mack was, was primarily interested. I mean, he had a real genuine interest in the USO. And that service center out there now at Lambert Air Force is named for him. Uh-huh. Uh, but Mr. Mack did not have anything to do with the Red Cross that I know anything about. Yeah, no, well, I just want to hear about him. What do you know about him? He just was a... He was a... He he knew. I don't want to bore you with this, but I I can give you a story. Bore me, go ahead. All right. After after I was appointed uh, CEO here at this chapter, we had this big blood program. Still do. We tried to get McDonnell Douglas <coughs> to let us come in on company time and draw blood. Mr. Mack believed in the blood program, but he didn't believe in letting them give it on company time. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Uh, to give you an example of how, how powerful this man really was, I sent the guy on the, the bottom row, John Christian, who was executive vice president of Monsanto and as tough as a boot, Bill Armstrong, Armstrong, Teasdale, Kramer, and Vaughn, the next picture, Look, for the sake of the tape, to go out, to Mr. Go Teeter is pointing out all the gentlemen who were who were chapter, who were Red Cross uh-huh. volunteer, volunteer leaders, leader. and we we and these guys all knew him, uh-huh. and they would and he would be very cordial. I I went out there with John Christian, and we and John said, now, now Mac, we want to do here like we do at other industries in St. Louis, and like we do it in other communities across the United States. We want to be able to draw come in here and draw blood on company time. No, he would not do it, and he never did do it. And I don't care how much power we, we put up against him. He said, you're welcome to come out here. You can set that thing, that blood mobile up on the parking lot, and these people get off the ship. They can give blood, but you ain't going to do it on company time. I admired him for his toughness. It hurt us because I was the biggest employer in the state of Missouri. And he was inconsistent because there were some McDonald plants, Donald Douglas plants on the West Coast, and one in Tulsa that were doing it on company time. But I'm only saying it as an anecdote about how yeah. how Mr. Mack had control, and he that was a decision he made, and he never did waver. Now they could come, and he he would be so gracious, he'd be so. <laughs> I'd, I'd go out there with staff people, go out there with all these volunteers, and. Got to call me by my first name and all that stuff, but he. And, so th- and sometimes you thought, I think today I think we, we got now him. we yeah. got him. I remember John, John Christian. But John had a fuse real short, and he'd get mad. John said, "I believe we got him this time." <laughs> uh-uh. No, not Mr. Matt. 
Oh boy, he didn't have any problems with McDonald's as he has now, and I'm talking out of turn. I don't know a thing about McDonald's. Well, no, this is what this 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 man that worked there. Oh, he was uh, in the in the plant. His wife, uh, when, when I asked about morale, and they brought up, you know, him uh, and Mr. Mack and how he talked to them, and she said uh, uh, over the loudspeaker, you know, she said same thing he said well it he was, was a great problem, so you're not talking out of no he was a, uh, mr. Mack had a he had an international view of things too he I think he was the first employer the first major employer I ever heard that let his employees off on United Nations Day he believed in the United Nations he was a great supporter of the USO because he liked to see what was going on for these we had so many troops in St. Louis you know great you just can't imagine what St. Louis was like. And why did we have so many troops in St. Louis? And well, with all those mili big major, major military installations around here, Jefferson Barracks, Fort Leonard Wood, Chanute Field, Bell, or, uh, Scott Field, Scott Field, all around the place. All Chanute, is that in Kansas? No, not Scott. No, Chanute. No, it's in Illinois. Oh, it's in Illinois? Yeah. Okay. And what was it like? Just, you just look, like look down the street and just see a, just see a, a sea of khaki. Downtown, yeah, oh, yeah. Just thousands of servicemen in these big, in these big areas. Thousands of them. They come, they come up here. From, they get a weekend off. They come up here from Fort Leonard Wood. Jefferson Barracks was at the end of the streetcar line down here on Broadway. You know. So, it's, but it was war. That's what it was all about. It was just. It's just a total different, uh, so much activity. It, it was really exciting. I, I worked in Washington, I, and I go to Washington, even now my wife's a lot younger than I am, she still works for the Red Cross, and I do a lot of volunteer work for the Red Cross. I was up there the other, just the other day. And, and being in Washington in World War II is one of the most exciting things you ever saw. You stay, with, stay with me here in St. Louis, though, for, the, for as much as you can give me, because I, I, this is the kind of thing that, that I'm looking for. Um, you read about it in books, but I need it from people. Um, there, the guys would get paid, and I guess they come to town, come spend to their town. money. Yeah, yeah. Bars would be filled up. Uh, stores would be filled up. Guys just walking down the street, just having fun, getting away from the base. So for some, even the the people in the stores, it was a sometimes it was a, a good time, maybe. Oh, it was. Oh, it was an exciting time. It was. It was so. In 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 St. Louis, there were shortages. Uh, there, people would line up out into the street to buy cigarettes. They'd, 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 they'd line up out in the street to buy whiskey. They'd, um, and then people, some people would hoard stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. but, but you would know, for example, that uh, out, out in Kirkwood, fellow ran, there was a, a chain of um, drugs. Peebley had uh, some drug stores. Or they had one on South Kirkwood Road, right across the street in that funeral home now. And a good friend of mine was a pharmacist, and he ran that. And, he was telling me a great sense. My Irishman just had a great sense of humor. He'd tell me about a guy there in Kirkwood who was hoarding whiskey. He would he would be the first one when Mac would get a in the store. He had a liquor store in there, and this guy would come in there. He'd be the first one there to get every bit of whiskey that that Mac didn't have a lot of. You didn't have much choice in brand. You know, you couldn't say, 
want scotch, give me a bottle of Shiva's Regal. They had scotch, took what they had. If, if maybe you smoke camel cigarettes, they might have wings. So you bought wings. But there were all kinds of shortages, and people got along. They're ration. You know, you had you had you probably had people tell you about all these right this ration stuff. Mm -hmm. You you had to have a if you used your car. I have a special dispensation because I was doing Red Cross work in connection with the with the war effort. So I got a little more gasoline on my ration card than most people. But it just it was just an entirely different time. People were charged up. They, 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 the morale, the civilian morale, was, was was a general thing. I think was very was very high. People had something to think about, something to do, and and, and people were going to work who had never worked before. There, there was hardly they, they couldn't even spell unemployment because if you want if you wanted a job you could find a job. I knew a girl, a neighbor of mine. I, I lived in Kirkwood at that time, riding that commuter train that there used to be one they called the Pacific Eagle. Did mm -hmm. you ever hear of that one? Mm -hmm. Okay. Little old stations about every mile or so along the Pacific. Well I started started riding on the train with this with this girl and her sister, they both both their husbands were in the military. Both of them were doctors. They were twins. These were twin twin sisters. And we got real well acquainted and I'd go over to their house and they'd come over to my house. This one gal said she got bored. She said, you know, I'm gonna, I heard the other day there was a job over at Lambert to make mystery. Well, they was over there on Franklin. She worked over there. She just walked over there and got a job. So you had a place here when you were here? I did. Well, yeah. I, I did for a while, yeah. Mm -hmm. But then I traveled so much that I, I had a family and I just kept them in place because of you I kept them there yeah and you well I had my family here with me in St. Louis long toward the end of the war when it started to shake down but I was traveling doing a lot of work with the with the Red Cross and disaster as well as services the armed mm -hmm. forces mm -hmm. entertainment what where did yeah. I guess that yeah, was they did more of that overseas mm -hmm. although although the Red Cross on uh, domestic as well as foreign had movie uh, uh, they they went out and hired um, maybe a swank mm -hmm. and others, movie experts. So, so they would take movies, just like, just like uh, the Werenberg Theaters. They, mm -hmm. they would arrange to put these movies in, particularly in station hospitals mm -hmm. where, where service people were sick or injured or whatever. Mm -hmm. just, it was monumental. I've never, I've never seen anything like it. What the Red Cross did? Yeah. Activity, you come into this chapter, you, in the, the right here, the St. Louis, by, or the St. What was it? Just the St. Louis chapter down there on Lindell, and the place that maybe they'd have eight or ten first aid classes going at one time, as well as what was going on out in the community. They'd have home nursing classes going on at one time. There, were people just falling out of the windows. They were crowded with volunteers and staff, but it was it was just warm. I remember my mother taught first aid and uh, worked at Traveler's Aid at Union Station. And I used to sit down there, and even as an 11-year-old, I knew I was seeing something. I knew that that, <coughs> that I, I'd watch people and yeah, I'd watch them say yeah. goodbye yeah. or say hello, but it was not just sitting at a mall like it is today oh, and no. watching people walk by with no expressions. It was 
you were really seeing a, a, a piece of life, yeah. and somehow, in your, even in your 11-year-old mind, you know, it was special. Yeah. Well, it was. Well, in fact, to the point where I go down there now, it upsets me, because I think on the stand, I'm standing someplace where there's this dinky place, or they're making fudge or something. Somebody said goodbye for the last time and never oh. saw them again. Yeah. I, oh, that's good. I know that. It good tears that. me up sometimes. Well, with all that traveling, I was doing an awful, very little of it was air travel, going on the train. I, I would buy a ticket. Well, specifically, I remember one time I had a ticket to go to San Antonio on the Missouri Pacific. That train left at 1 o'clock. It was supposed to leave at 1 o'clock. I had a ticket chair. Didn't have, couldn't get a berth. I had a first-class ticket, but I, could, I had a reserved seat. And when I got down there, somebody else already had it. And I got down there three hours before the train left, and that place was filled up. Well, they had, there were four, there were four competing railroads to Chicago. Mm -hmm. The Chicago and Eastern Illinois, the old Wabash, the Missouri Pacific, or no, the uh, Gulf Mobile, Ohio, and there was a, the Illinois Central. Trains would pull out on competing trains with maybe 25 coaches on passenger trains going mm -hmm. to Chicago, pull out at the same time on different air, on different roads. You know, but what you're talking about, where all the, where they backed in, mm -hmm. there were 30 gates down there. Well, that's the way it was. A friend of mine, my friend of my mother's told me the other day, her husband was in the Navy, she said, you, when you were on a train during the war, you didn't get up to go to the bathroom because somebody took your oh, seat. Oh, you know what I would like to ask you? Um, you hear so much about the Red Cross overseas in Europe, but um, for some reason, I, you don't hear as much about in the South Pacific, and Virginia Deutsch said that she was in the South Pacific, so I'm looking forward to interviewing her. Um, or maybe that, I guess because there were so many, the islands, and they moved well, so... Well, it was a different thing. Yeah, yeah it was, if you look, if you look at a globe, you look at a, a, at a map of the South Pacific, it's vast. Yeah. And, and when we were, we were losing that war, the first part of it, you know, I had Jasper clobbered it. But when you look at, at Guadalcanal, Iwo Jima, it's a lot, there's a lot of geography in between, so it was spread out. Yeah, Guadalcanal was. They started that in uh, August, I believe, of 42, which I couldn't believe because that's so soon. We must have gotten ourselves together while we failed. We did. We did. It didn't end it until the My February, brother was down there. <coughs> My brother, well, I said, he's two years younger than I am, and he was down there for, well, he was in service for about six years. And he said, I was down there when we were losing the war. And it was a, he was at Pinchhaven, the Dutch East Indies, when, the, when we were really getting clobbered because they caught us flat-footed anyway. But it was remarkable how we did turn it around, but it took it took a better part of a year before it started to turn around. Guadalcanal was, was, as you say, in August of 42. Well, Mr. Teeter is somebody who's not a lot younger, but a little bit younger than you. I'd like to thank you for all those good things that you did during the war, because I'm sure you well, made it a I, lot easier. It was a, great, it was a great experience, and I had, I had a great time. And I, I wish we could settle our problems in this world without going to war, but it seems like we don't learn too much. Well, that's another tape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we could be here for three days. We'll, on we'll that. talk again. Memorabilia. Uh, 
seems to consist so far of what I've seen on the scrapbooks that have been made uh, by the Webster Groves chapter, and there are some in the 40s. 